Greetings and welcome to the Mount Rushmore Podcast. And you know the drill. We talk about the top four uh, ubiquitous aspects of any given topic. Richard and Michael, they go head to head. And this week's episode is no different when they're going to debate the Mount Rushmore of things you've done a 180 on. Who chose this topic? Um, I chose this topic, and I was specifically thinking about one thing that will come up a little bit later in the uh, podcast. Okay. This Sorry, was a, you... something I did a 180 on. It got me thinking about other things in life that I've kind of changed my tune on. And I thought, we all have those things. So it would be uh, a good time to explore that. Cool. If you are a competitive skateboarder or uh, somebody who's <laughs> going to the X Games, you probably listen to this 180 stuff and thinking, that's child's play. <laughs> I do like whenever... I love whenever someone says they've done a 360 on a, on an issue. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> nothing. Appreciated. Yeah, yeah, you just spun yourself in a circle. Congratulations. <laughs> well, that I, I guess what I one thing I'm fascinated with this topic is uh, we mature, we go on a journey, and we find ourselves moving away and then toward things. So conceivably, you could uh, if the if this say this the um, um, status was do i like the beatles when i was a eight-year-old kid i loved the beatles and then as an adult as a 51 year old kid i like him for a whole different reason than i ever mm. did back then so there i i think there might be t almost a way where that could that could be maybe to the outside observer you wouldn't the state the state doesn't seem very different but i I, I, I appreciate this in a long line of um richard type topics over the last um four and a half years that we've been doing this podcast where um, it's always calling into question one's questions. Like I think Richard was always looking to see um, there's always that like maybe there's a devious nature of things. We're always kind of looking at the underside of things. I think this in some way plays into there's like Richard definitely has a other side of the coin sort of aspect to how you look at life at times. And I think this is, I think this is right in there. Like, uh, you know, that it's like the two faced sort of thing. I don't know. There's something there that I oh. I'm always, whenever a topic like this comes up, it's like, Oh yeah, Richard. I think Richard is, um, you're diverse in your thought and you can always see like the underside or the opposite side of things. I, I don't be, know. Maybe to it's... be fair, to be fair to myself, at least this week, I will say three of my four are positive things. Oh, that's good. Three. Okay. So, there's only one thing that I did a negative turn on. Oh, that's interesting. So. Okay, cool. All right. So, so uh, uh, Richard shows it. Michael will start. Uh, Donald Trump, guys. I I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm changing my mind on him. Uh, it seems like a straight shooter. Maybe he's actually a good guy. Maybe Hillary should be in jail. Um, but seriously, I I gotta say this. Um. And maybe it comes down to – it's obviously not Donald Trump because that guy should be in jail uh, <laughs> for sure. Right. Um, and maybe this is kind of how this topic has kind of grown out of or kind of felt like it's been mirrored with some other topics that we've covered like uh, uh, like our high school regrets episode mm -hmm. um, or like one of our older topics um, – Mount Rushmore, something you were too young to appreciate yet, episode 126. Ooh. But um, when I was uh, in high school and even into college, even, and this goes back to like my comic book tastes, um, I, I was convinced that comic book art 
was the most important thing in terms of storytelling. And very specifically, you know, as a visual medium, um, that just if something was dynamic and interesting and just kind of the glossy veneer of it. And one thing really jumped out at me. There was an issue of X-Force and it was X-Force number eight. And this was back in like 1991 or 92. And the, previous artist is this guy rob liefeld who is kind of universally reviled as just (laughs) terrible like everybody like you're just laughing even at his mention but he was like you know kind of the hot hip cool artist but he he really wasn't very good he was really like he was quote unquote dynamic just because he drew a lot of like speed lines on things but like there was an issue where he took could he draw women with big boobs he did and no feet yeah 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 and would forget how many fingers people had on certain characters. And it was just, it was all over the yeah. place. He was, there was the no ammo belts. And... <laughs> there was no consistency, but he was like, you know, quote unquote, exciting. And, um, there's an artist that came in and did like a filler issue. And it's this artist by the name of Mike Mignola. And you may know him as a creator of Hellboy. And he has a very stark graphic style. The lines were kind of edgy. There was no kind of consistency in like anatomy, but it doesn't really, it doesn't matter in terms of art. But I remember thinking, God, what absolute trash, what, what awful artistry. And over the last like couple of months or month or so, I've been going back and reading old X-Men comics and just looking and reading the stories. And it's amazing how much my attitude has really changed in terms of um, what makes a good artist and what makes a good comic book. And it's amazing how it's, there's these little fundamental things in terms of art, but then ultimately it's all about the writing and the story. And it doesn't make, I haven't talked a lot about like writing of comic books, but like, I think it, it goes, it's very, um, it goes to show when, you know, there's a big like third the big third comic book publisher in the 90s called themselves Image. And it was all about getting the hot artists, the Topic Farland, Rob Liefeld, and Will Portacio, and Jim Lee, and all these guys that were primarily known as artists, not writers. And I bought all of their books. But the books weren't very good. Like, the writing was terrible and kind of garbage. The art looked cool. It looked cool. And it didn't... It, it took a lot of reading comic books and a lot of time to kind of be like, Oh yeah, it really is about how they're written versus how the image of what's on, Mm -hmm. on the page. Hmm. I would say the the advent of digital tools have created more technically, I still feel like I've seen more technically polished and perfect comics that seem like the, um, emergency exit instructions for an airplane. Like they just seem so mm. lifeless and horrible. Every, everybody's in the right scale. I almost feel like it's two and a half D like they use CAD or something to make this. That's comic. interesting. And yeah. I just can't even deal with it. Um, yeah. That's an interesting thing. Like the, you, you went from artist uh, bias towards story bias. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. And, and, you know, maybe that's just a, an aspect of just 
reading more and more comics, you know, the change of when you're 13 years old to when you're 25 years old and reading comics or whatever yeah. it is. And it's just, um, I don't know. I, I remember there being like, I, that was one of those moments that I looked back upon. It was like, Oh, I can't believe I look so far down upon this one guy's art, even though right now I'd be like, Oh, he's a hundred times better than Rob Liefeld yeah. in terms of yeah. how he sets up a panel, how he, uh-huh. draws a character how he understands the medium yeah are there certain genre or uh medium so w- with music you might appreciate the ramones or the sex pistols or something mm-hmm. for being primitive energetic but full of life versus technique or flash mm-hmm. whereas a comic you couldn't do that at the time you couldn't say oh this guy's punk rock I think you had punk rock comics, but they're just like zines and they were like, just, they oh, were, okay. they were done, you know, it's yeah. kind of like, oh, they were just, they were drawn fast and done uh-huh. to get them out and you're done with a certain energy yeah. and the actual, uh, I, I would say I, today, I don't expect every issue to look the same back then. I just wanted, um, Spider-Man to be on model every, in every book I read, I didn't want him to be different mm. and I didn't want Batman to be different. And now I kind of appreciate a different approach. It kind of gives you, a, especially when you're binging them. As a kid, you didn't have unlimited Marvel Unlimited, so you couldn't just crack it open and like read uh, 12 episodes in a row. And now yeah. I can. It's almost cool to just kind of have like a like a a visual sorbet or, or like a palate cleanser. <laughs> like, oh, Thor's gonna look that, different for this episode. <laughs> that is one wild thing. I've been going back and reading like old um, Uncanny X-Men, and it feels like every two or three issues like Chris Claremont, the writer, um, reintroduces every like character trait. And like Wolverine is doing something. It's like, yeah, by the way, I do have these un- unbreakable adamantium claws and my healing. It's like he, they spell it out yeah. over and over. And it's just like all of the character beats. Are like every every four ep- issues, you know, Colossus shows how he is super strong and almost uh-huh. unbreakable, but he's so panged with doubt whether he can do it or not <laughs> storms like the uh, uh you she's just constantly reminded that yes she was once buried underneath rubble and has <laughs> these like <laughs> issues of of uh, being claustrophobic and uh she wants to be out there in the in the wind but she, she could never kill it it's just like uh-huh. it's like it's amazing how it's just that's just what comics were at some point you were just reiterating the same things as if a brand new reader was picking up issue yeah. 207 and then a brand new reader was picking up 213 mm-hmm. i don't know uh man freddy what do you got all right so my first one is on your favorite topic jeff baseball oh perfect mm-hmm. yes <laughs> and very specifically the designated hitter rule oh very interesting richard <laughs> yeah i have i have done a complete 180 on this when I was growing up, I was a baseball traditionalist, and I just loathed the idea that pit, the pitchers were not hitting for themselves. Oh, no, you're pro-DH now? I am now pro-DH. Oh, I hate you. Well, well, ooh, this is, this is going to get spicy. Now, did you grow up with an American League team or a National League team? I grew up with a National League team, so I think that okay. probably impacted that to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, I, two things have happened. One, I've just realized that I don't have the patience to go to a baseball game or watch a game where I know one out of every nine at bats is, is basically 
worthless. Like, you know nothing is going to happen except to see some guy wildly flailing around a bat three times until he strikes <laughs> out and then just trods back to the gut dugout. I mean, the, the advantage of the, the pitcher hitting is that you get to see someone who is allegedly incredibly athletic look exactly like I would look trying to do something. <laughs> but I, mm. but it just in general, I, I don't have time for this, man. Yeah. I don't, mm. I, I'm not, I, I, I don't get it. There's no pleasure for me to be had watching a hitter, a pitcher. Yeah. To hit. And the other thing that the DH does is it allows short squat fat guys to have a place in baseball. Oh, look out. This is all. This is such a look inside Richard Manfredi. Is there an equivalent? So if you let the uh, the place kicker play offense in football, like what would happen? Like yeah, what happened? What happened if the, play, keep... if the place yeah. kicker also had to be the quarterback for like one yeah. one play every series <laughs> or something yeah. like that? That's basically what we're talking about. Baseball is full of specialization. I mean, you've got guys who made whole careers out of being a left-handed pitcher whose sole job is to get out one left-handed hitter every game. That's that's a guy. So yeah. I don't know why. The, I, I guess I no longer see the problem with having a specialist. Yeah, but how, who's how, often does, how often does Joe Bimel actually go in and pitch and, and actually hit a baseball? Well, he never does. Well, but there you go. To, but I have to see, you know, uh, oh, I don't know. I was going to say Kershaw, but Kershaw can actually hit a little bit. Yeah, he can but, hit okay. Alex Wood. I don't need to see Alex Wood flailing his bat up there. Um, I think what I don't like, I understand, like from a visual standpoint, from a being a person in, um, you know, the audience watching, you know, basically almost an automatic out be put on the board. They do have their place in terms of, um, you know, sometimes they advance the runner. Sometimes you're just an out, and I, I, I get that. But what I think is wild is that these guys always seem to go from every baseball player at some point was the best athlete on their team, right? Yes. In high yes. school, like yes. no matter who it is, the star pitcher that only gets one person out, he was probably also the best um, basketball player. He was like he excelled in some other sport. He it, was the king's jock. Yeah, it, it is a shame that um, that once you get to the majors, you are relegated into a role where they're not practicing. I think, but that's all on you. Like, I think you have to put in that that individual effort to actually take more batting practice. And I, I don't know. I like maybe it's a reps thing, but um, I think it only leads to more specialization. And I wish that that I don't know. I'm, fine I, I'm just I'm just I'm just not I'm just not there. I'm and fine with it's... specialization, and I've it's... watched, having watched this season, where the DH is in both leagues just as a special one-year thing, mm-hmm. and it hasn't bothered me at all. I don't think it necessarily takes away from the game. I I understand that. I just, it's just, I think it's a shame that it's there to begin with. It's like you know, kind of the arguments of like, uh, uh, people shooting free throws. Like if you're a poor free throw shooter, like. What am I trying to say? Um, Wasn't this so? I'm re- I'm reading that this was initially done, and it's somewhat as a way for the American League, which was dragging behind the National League and scoring in attendance, to uh, not to disappoint fans. Yeah. To exactly. pop a guy in there who's going to hit get hit the ball. 
Right. And it was a three-year experiment that was permanently um, made part of the rules in 76 or something. Yeah, yeah. And it was, you know, it's, I think Michael's is on the side that I used to be on, mm -hmm. which is, this is, you know, he's, this is traditionally going back a hundred years to the start of baseball. Everybody hits. Yeah. This is the way it should be. I'm on this. I've now come around to the side of, well, wait a second. We change rules all the time in sports. Mm -hmm. And this is a rule change that has, that makes one ninth of the game more interesting. Yeah. Michael, you would like if the equipment manager had to come out, if the ball girl, she had to hit the, the that's bus exactly, driver. That's exactly what I'm saying. That's They're all part of the team. Hits. The guy that's hits. the guy that's selling um, beers in yeah. the stand. He should get a whack. Uh, the yeah. um, the person that's uh, cleaning up piss in the men's room trough. He should get. He should play an inning. Uh, yep. You got me right. All in. That's egalitarian. Everybody yep. hits. Okay. I'll listen for my second pick. I'll stay in sports if that's okay with you guys. <laughs> yeah. Go. All right. All right. Sounds like we're moving. Uh, uh, at some point. Um, and maybe it was like because I never really played any sports in uh, uh, high school or college, um, and then we started playing kickball. Uh, cheating is okay in sports if you don't get caught and it's your team. I've within within the span of a couple of years, I um I did a whole 180 on that, especially as I started rising um, into actually having to be accountable for the things that were happening. <laughs> right. <laughs> like Richard, when we, when we were on the awesome helicopter ninjas uh, kickball team, um, we used to just go through that scorebook or the, the rule book and try to find any little instance of things that we could take advantage of and uh, possibly look the other way upon and try to skirt the rules. And um, I wouldn't say that it necessarily, um, it necessarily happened within a game. I'm not saying that we actually did any, um, actual cheating, but I would say that we uh, didn't particularly care if uh, if something went the wrong way and we uh, it benefited us, right? Would you well, say that's I would, accurate? I would say that we were we were creative at finding loopholes within the rules. Yeah, and at some point, I think when uh, I started running the league <laughs> and I right. started running the people that were doing the umpiring and having to be accountable for that um and maybe even a few seasons or a couple of years before that is that started becoming like the thing that i was heavily involved in it was like no the rules are what they are and regardless of whether you know them or not they should be applied universally and i remember just one particular instance when being just so let down and disappointed when someone obviously knew the rules and would argue against them and like fictitiously argue uh, in their favor. And I'm thinking of our good friend, Max. Yeah, I, know, I knew who you were going to say. 100%, 100%, it was always going to be Max. And um, uh, we have a good friend that played kickball with us. And if you're listening to this um, and you Max know Max, no, Maxwell is 100% not listening to us. But if you know him, you know that he is one of those guys that um, – is pro taking advantage of things that go their way and uh, observe, uh, you know, very um, willfully unobserving things that don't. Right. Yeah. Would you say that's accurate? That's, that's very accurate. 
Uh, maybe it's even being kind. I wouldn't say he ever cheated, but I would say that he uh, he likes winning at all costs. It doesn't matter if um, the rule book is kind of laid in cinders. Um, and I, to a point, I just there was one particular game where everything kind of went topsy turvy, and I was asked an opinion, and my opinion was wrong. And I think the opinion, I don't know. I think something, I think something switched in me and it was just like, this is bad. This is just straight up bad. It's not cheating, but it's just like <sighs> litigation in sports, I think is awful. Right. And I think that it's fun to watch a, your team win. It's not fun to watch your team win and then have to go and defend it even though you know you're on the wrong side. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think uh, it's not just like moralism. Maybe it is. It's maybe just being like, you know what? Just if your team loses and they lost because they cheated or they lost because a rule went against them, that's just the way it is, man. And you just got to grow up and deal with it. Yeah, but you know what would have been cool? Oh, what would have been cool? Please tell me. Oh, if, that, if, if, if my dream would have happened and one time I would have been standing on a base – and been able to actually catch a ball and then chuck it into the outfield. Mm. Because that's, that was a play that I, I, I tried to make happen for years, and I got close a couple of times. Because if I was standing on the base, you see, I can't be out if the ball touches me. And if I get the ball and I just happen to chuck it all the way in the outfield where nobody is, and then start <laughs> running, there's nothing in the rules that says I can't do that. As if you were like... <laughs> What was that? You're not interfering. <laughs> I'm what? You're not interfering. <laughs> no, I wouldn't be interfering because I'm just I. If, if someone if the ball's coming at me and I happen to catch it, I have as much don't don't I have as much much of a right to the ball as the defender? It's like football, you're the, right? You're the runner, right? Yeah, like football. <laughs> it's like equal 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 standing right there. But no, I Michael I. <laughs> <laughs> I completely agree with you. And the more I played kickball, the more I, the, the more this sort of thing bothered me. What's what's that thing that um, Barack Obama used to say? Uh, it uh, what it always the curve bends towards um, justice, something like that. Right. Yeah. You know, and it was always I I never got upset whenever someone didn't know the rule because they hadn't been playing that long or yeah legitimately didn't know the rules. There were certain teams that had been playing long enough where you knew they knew the rules, and they would still, you know, bitch at you about a call, yeah. even though you knew they you knew they were not they weren't arguing in good faith. There you go. That's, there you that's go. the way to put it. There you go. Well, okay. Uh, the uh, second choice from Richard is is. Uh, this is the only negative one that I have, by the way. Oh. Right. Um, oh, right, whatever. Fuck it. Jeff will, um, be the, Jeff will be the judge of that. I guess. Sam Kinison has not aged well. Mm. I mean, partially he's not aged well because he's been dead for <laughs> yeah. 30 years now. But his comedy in particular. Yeah. I When I was in, you know, late 80s, early 90s, you know, you're 12, 14 years old. This is exactly right. This is the vein of comedy that is perfect for you as a 12-year-old. Mm-hmm. Lots of screaming, lots of dirty talk, you know, lots of swear words. 
And I just thought he was a comedic genius when I was a certain age. And you go back and listen to any of his stuff today. It's not good. There's no punchlines for the most part. I find Andrew Dice Clay to be the same way, but I never really liked Andrew Dice Clay to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think the 180 for me was more on Sam Kinison. And just any any humor that was there was... I'm, I'm now so put off by the misogyny and the homophobia and the everything else that was part of the routine that I, I just can't. I'm with you on that. I, I think he... He was of a time, and he has not transcended that time. And I think he was uh, almost like the other side of this coin that the PC movement and men's, um, uh, you know, the mm-hmm. Robert Bly, <laughs> he was like, on the other right. side of this, all this, the almost like he's the opposite of a Wyndham Hill CD or something like he that. He was the anti-Alan Alda. Yeah. It, it, I, and like, you know, Dice... He was a character created by this guy, and like a guy like um, uh, Bill Hicks, he was also in the mode of this um, kind of southern preacher type of guy. Well, he was that, a preacher, right? He was yeah, a, he was a Pentecostal preacher at one point. Yeah, and I think he and Bill Hicks actually were um, um, cohorts. They came out together, and they both had this kind of southern kind of uh, came out of church and came out of the Sunday school and preaching and stuff like that. Um, but Hicks, I think he was so conceptual and uh, Kinison was just trying to burn the place down and he was just trying to be, and I could see also somebody saying, you know, I'm not a sweater comic. I'm not this guy Seinfeld who has honed these observations to such a fine point. Uh, I want to be a rock star. Let me be a rock and, yeah, he the, wanted to be he wanted to be Ozzy Osbourne. Yeah, and like the lyrics of a White Snake song, they just don't <laughs> they just don't transcend. <laughs> yeah. Wait, are you saying Cherry Pie by Warrant is not? <laughs> yeah, Warrant. Yeah. I, I, I would agree with it. Then, See, that's that's an that's an interesting thing. I think sometimes a one eighty is when you matured uh, and found yourself. N- enjoying something in a new way with new ears and i think sometimes it's because the other thing matured like the beastie boys when they were doing you got to fight for your right to party when it first came out i thought this is stupid shit and who are these guys and they're stupid and the beastie boys also thought all that stuff was stupid then they became that stuff and then they found you know, enlightenment and Tibet. A path and, out of it, yeah. Yeah, a way, a path out of the, the jock rock dumb shit that they were doing. But Kinison was, I think, a product of a very specific time that caught fire. Um, and so, in a way, the world just kind of grew. Oh, well, we all grew up. We all kind of evolved away from that thing. Yeah, I, I wonder, like, if Sam Kinison hadn't have been killed in that car accident. Mm-hmm what his career path would have been like and would he have had an Andrew Dice Clay like career path where eventually his stick would have worn thin and then either he would have had to adapt or get left yeah. behind. Yeah. He might've found another character, another more, you know, I don't know that I think Dane Cook kind of wanted to be the rock star comedian. And um, I don't know that he's, 
you know, found another path. He's doing voice work and stuff like that. But Dan Kinnison is someone, he's someone that when he died, I think other comedians were like, whoa, what a great comedian he was. There was a lot of reverence within the stand-up community Mm -hmm. for him. And I don't think that if you ask comedians today about Sam Kinison that you would get the same response. Yeah. And so it's maybe that's kind of, I think that that speaks to your point. And maybe, Michael, it's a little bit of the mirror image of the things that I wasn't mature enough to, to appreciate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Maybe this is the mirror image of that. It's stuff that I was too immature to, to not appreciate 30 years ago that I've now just sort of grown out of. Yeah, that could be it. All right, this is our halftime. Going at, I'm going to ask you to go back and do a 180. <laughs> go back. I know you've loved all our past episodes. I bet you find some that you hate if you just go back and listen to them again. Listen um, to them in reverse order and just hear them get um, uh, hear our stories that we've told again and again and again. Yeah. And then you get to the one you're like, oh yeah, I've heard. That's the first yeah. time we've heard this one. And maybe there's some that you gave a one rating on before go back and see if you don't give it a five after listening to it again see if you do a flip a rooney on that and then go out after you've done all that and uh revile us on the social media handles with all your commentary and your thoughts and um, about uh regrets and wasted time that you spent here on the mount rushmore podcast oh my god jeffrey you're leading into my next pick <laughs> okay hey. i love it i love there it <laughs> Hey, before we go to your next pick, yeah, I want sorry, to remind sorry, everybody, sorry. if you go to ClassicHorrorShop.com until um, November 1st, you'll get the uh, discount um, uh, of 15% off, I think it was, or maybe yeah. just no, 15% off, uh, if you use MR2020, 2020, MR2020. So that's our good friend, Dawn uh, Paul Gerlings, who uh, was the guest on our last episode. And speaking of regrets... Uh, you'll regret it if you don't, but Michael, what are you talking about when you talk about regrets? Okay. So my third choice is, um, I used to love watching just like terrible movies, just like bad movies. Um, watching shitty movies to have like ironic fun. I've grown into a point where it's just a waste <laughs> of time. They're not great to watch. I have no. I also have no time to just watch like shitty movies or like think that shitty movies are like good bad movies. Yeah, I, I just don't get it anymore. It why waste the limited time that I have watching something that I know is terrible? That like I'm viscerally just like, oh, wh- why am I doing this? I know that there's like a sense of familiarity to it. I know that there's like. Maybe you're just a little drunk and like, it's so bad, it's good. I don't believe that anymore. I used to really, I used to love it. But like, I never need to see Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins. Oh, hey, again. what are you talking about? <laughs> I just watched see, that for go. the first time. Did I, just, you? I, say, I just tried so to watch funny. that for the first time. I couldn't <laughs> get past. Um, Joel Gray doing as best he can in the most, all the, most racist part since... Uh, Mickey Andy, Rooney is Mickey Rooney, yeah, and Breakfast at Tiffany's, <laughs> or Andy like, Rooney at Breakfast, or Andy Rooney. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like it's not like I've devoted my life or have really spent any time devoting any time to like watching like Merchant Ivory films or anything. I'm not like a remains of the day type guy, yeah. but I do not need to spend my time to waste any time engaging in this sort of behavior, and. I think it's also tied into 
like a thing that I started feeling like five or six years ago, which is like being really repelled by cynicism. Mm -hmm. And I think that the two things are so just linked. Um, and Richard, I want to read a hangout that we had back from oh, June man. 23rd, 2015. Oh, back when we used to chat. Back when we used to chat online all day via like Gmail, Gchat. And we we're talking about our friend, this is a kickball thing, of course, our friend Joe um, being coming onto our team, our last kickball team ever. So, and this is one of the things that made me think of this is um, you asked me, our, our friend Joe is a big Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles guy. And uh, you asked me, um, did you listen to the new How Did This Get Made regarding TMNT 2? And I wrote back saying, I haven't listened to it in months and blah, blah, blah. And back then I responded to you saying like, I'm just getting tired of cynicism and liking things that are bad as if to be cool. And it was really this kind of revolutionary 180 moment because I, I own a physical copy of the aforementioned Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins on DVD. And like, there's part of me that like, yeah, I, I could watch Ninja 3, The Domination, one of the best ninja movies, but it's not like, it's not great. It's kind of like terrible in all aspects. But like, I don't know, the idea of just like making fun of things that are bad for the, and just for that reason i just felt so uh i don't know like i i get it it's it is you know um it's there, content it's there. but i think there's something there was something related there there's there's like there is like the ironic liking of something but it feels very cynical and it feels very i don't know there's hmm. a i made this i made this i don't know maybe i was like looking back on hmm my world and then it's just like I don't want to engage in this anymore. Is there a difference between some, watching something that is ironically bad versus something that is organically bad? And what I mean by that is something that someone set out to make a good movie and it turned out terrible versus like a hard ticket to Hawaii where everyone mm -hmm. involved knew they were making a C-grade schlock movie and just had fun with it. This is if you want to go back and listen to a previous episode on the Mount Rushmore of skateboarding scenes in videos. Yes. Uh, this is one that Richard <laughs> uh, Richard um, um, talked about then. Um, I don't know. Like, I think that there's still a point to not watching. <laughs> I think that sure. even though you know you're making garbage, like, I do you feel like you have like less. Feel like a schoolyard bully beating up on the 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 kid who's. You know, everybody knows this kid isn't uh, very can't run very fast, or isn't going to go out with the prom queen. Is that what you feel like, or does there's it feel a little like... bit of that? But there's also just a little bit of like, there's so much good stuff that's made, and so little time to watch it all that yeah. I don't feel I I cannot. Oh yeah, I can't devote any time to just like uh, watching the bad stuff anymore. When you look into the abyss, the abyss looks back at you, and you become part of it. And, you sometimes, become... that, and sometimes that abyss is real steel. Yeah. Jeff, you did it. Yeah, we donate one million dollars to the Cancer Society when somebody mentions real steel in an organic way. <laughs> we'll pull our money for the rest of our lives to get that money. Oh, there it's all go. the podcast money. Yep. Oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> 
Okay. All right. Fair enough. Um, yeah. I, you know, I'm at that point where there are movies that were classics, like Roadhouse, have not seen it in its completion. Um, I tried to start watching. I tried to watch The Goonies got halfway through. Tried to watch um, uh, uh, Top Gun. Never, never did see it when it came out. And it's too late. <laughs> it's too late. Whatever cool it polish. Didn't, it didn't embed its little, its little uh, barbs and hooks into yeah. you. Yeah. I think I think it was uh, the good kind of exciting. It was the good kind of cheese on your burger back then, and we've we're di- we're eating a different cheese now. Oh, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> when you're used to, when you when you've been eating American cheese all your life, and suddenly yeah. uh, you can just like have have a nice uh, nice sharp recl- cheddar raclette of a of a, <laughs> of a gouda. Um, okay, uh, man, Freddy. Yeah, all right. So my third one is my music related choice and i had a lot to choose from i honestly could have done the whole mount rushmore just on music related 180s um but the one that i chose is in a band that i wouldn't have been caught dead listening to in high school Mm. that is the swedish uh super super group abba wow i love abba now oh wow in an unironic I think they're musical geniuses kind of sort of way. And yeah, absolutely. Me being 16, 17 years old, listening to, you know, Operation Ivy and Minor Threat. If I would have been, I would have been drummed out of the punk rock core for listening to ABBA. And I think it clicked for me one time I was listening to uh, an Elvis Costello song. And it had a very big, I think it was Oliver's Army, and it had like a big piano flourish right mm-hmm. before like a chorus coming in. And I said, wow, that sounds a lot like something ABBA would do. Hey, wait a second. Maybe I need to reconsider them. But my wife was really into them back in college, so she would start throwing on the greatest hits CDs when we go on road trips. And after a while, it was just sort of like, I don't like ABBA, but Mamma Mia is a really good song. Okay, I'll concede that. (laughs) Okay, and Super Trooper's kind of a jam, too. Okay, Fernando, that's a great song. And after a while, it's just like, (laughs) there's a dozen great songs on this CD. There's, There's 20 great songs on this CD. I mean, they're all, some of them are cheesy and not necessarily winners. And I will admit, I only know the greatest hits type package stuff. So it's not like I know the deep cuts and who knows yeah. what what the track number eight on the arrival is and if it's a good song or not. But there's a lot of there's a lot of bangers. Mm-hmm. Let's put it that way. And I I appreciate them unironically. Michael, what's your feeling on ABBA? Uh, I I'm in the court of I haven't listened to them enough. I'm generally uninterested but i'm guessing that it's just built on kind of like a latent uh kind of built-in anti-70s disco era whatever it's what what, whatever it is it's just like there's this like well they look ridiculous they look ridiculous that we have to i i think i'm kind of there is this 1970 like the entire decade of the 1970s save I don't know some 
some wandering Paul Simon stuff. I, I just, I just deeply don't care about. It wasn't prevalent in our household. So, and it, by the time that I got into music, the stuff that um, became interesting was kind of like early '80s stuff. Not that like it was, you know, all. It's not like all '70s stuff is bad, but like you know, the '70s moved into a, you know, post. Uh, post uh, rock and roll era and then whatever the smooth 70s was and just kind of that light floating uh, extension of the 60s smooth what's it <laughs> and then the disco and this I, it's just none of that none of that invaded like my my airwaves and none of it invaded oh. like my radio. So like I, it's all of it is just like, maybe there's a lot of great stuff there, but I just, I could not care. And it even extends to like, uh, you know, um, Fleetwood Mac. I'm sure mm -hmm. there's a ton of great Fleetwood Mac stuff. I literally don't care. I, it's who cares. I don't know. I think you're dissing, the... you're dissing half of the acts, by the way, that Jeff has to introduce. <laughs> Starlight <laughs> There's probably a, a band called Fleetwood Abba. That's a merge of uh, or the ABBGs. There's definitely like, you know, if you're gonna draw like a timeline, there's just this, this big like upside down weak muscle loop of just like 50s, 60s. I feel pretty well versed in like just general like rock and roll up and through like 1969, and then goes boop. And then like picks up in like 1977, 78, 79 and it's like punk rock and new wave and all that stuff. But like it just literally goes and just move along. I think so that I... is the part of the marginalization of disco. Because like, mm. where I came from, ABBA was part of the dance music movement. And then later on, I kind of just listened to it on a CD and it was kind of separate from the dance music movement. Um you know, there was Disco Sucks, which was a campaign by the rec by the music industry to kill disco. So there was all this great music that that was succeeding not through some um, photogenic celebrity singer. Um, it was succeeding just because people were moving and grooving. Their bodies, you know, were the ones who were deciding out on the dance floor whether it was a good song or not. And ABBA, with the BPM of those songs and the catchy chord changes and things like that, just like unstoppable dance floor hits. So I, I'm like with you, Richard, I think it was 1997 after my first, well, my only divorce, I moved from <laughs> uh, the college town I lived in into Kansas City and started working at this little hipster coffee shop. And there were these four or five punk rock dudes. They were all in different types of bands, one might be the alt country guy. One might be in the, the punk band. One guy would be in like the ska band. They all loved ABBA. And they all talked about how Benny and Bjorn were musical geniuses. And once you see it through that lens, um, and once you just look at the charts and saying that the global um, sales don't necessarily lie, <laughs> that was a real eye opener for me. It was you know permission what? to... Permission to take the corn cob out of my ass and just dig it and enjoy it. You know what got you know what did it for me was the fact that when Erasure, you remember they came out with Abba yeah. Esque? It was yeah. like an EP that was like like four four song yeah. EP of cover songs. And they wound up being a big hit, especially in the UK. 
And it kind of got me thinking, like, wait a second. Why is there that much difference between a band like Erasure, yeah. who we all agree is hip and cool, mm-hmm. and a band like ABBA, who is, uh, you know, critically shit upon at yeah. the time? Mm-hmm. Um, and it was hard to see that much of a difference. They didn't yeah. have to. They didn't have to do that much to the songs to turn them into Erasure songs. Mm-hmm. It was like and a permission kind of, per- permission slip. Like, yeah, if the, the cool kids tell you that this is cool, then you can say like, oh, well, this is cool then. Exactly. Mm. I did not ever like One Night in Bangkok, though. And I that's, know that's not ABBA. Not, it's not ABBA. <laughs> but so it's Benny and Bjorn. Don't pin that on Don't pin that on Don't pin that on ABBA. Richard, you should have gotten a you should have gotten a better you should have gotten a better deal on that trip you can't just spend one night in bangkok you get the two days <laughs> yeah you gotta have three a, days two a nights long come on yeah yeah yeah, yeah. That's, your, that's your fault he gets his kicks above the waistline uh <laughs> a winfield what's your final choice okay now this might be a 180 it might be a 360 it might be a 720 it might be a combination of different numbers but it it's seeing people when (laughs) (laughs) seeing actual people. And maybe this is just like super so COVID related that I'm thinking about this. But when, when I was done with my 10 years of kickball, when I was over playing with a couple hundred people on different Mm -hmm. teams, when I was over running different leagues and seeing people multiple nights a week, I got to a point where I did not need to see anybody ever. I saw you guys every couple of weeks to record the podcast and it's fun and has continued to be fun i'd see a few friends here and there but in general seeing the dozens and the this gigantic um you know circle of friends in our friend group shrink dramatically was just a delight to me i it was not interesting to me i didn't need to maintain all of these friendships and maybe that speaks to me who i am but then as um you know, we had a child, it expanded again. It was like, oh, I want to see more people and see their kids and expand it out and do this thing. And then the quarantine hit and it was just like, you're automatically seeing less people and I don't want to see anybody for health reasons. And <laughs> I'm so uninterested in seeing people and being involved. And now I'm at a point where I'm like, I don't know if I'm tipping back again to like, oh, I'd like to see people and hang out on it. Maybe it could be that something is gratuitous as football is back and I'd like to hang out at a friend's house and see friends watching football and drinking beers and the general atmosphere that that is and having a child that's three and change and he can interact with other kids and like I want to see people again but at the same time there's part of me that like when quarantine hit and like I'm working from home and I don't need to go into the office and I have this little solitude here at times it's like okay, I don't, I, it is, so my 180 is going like 180, 360, 540? You're a regular Tony math. Hawk. You're a regular Tony Hawk yeah. at this point. You went I'm, from the full 900. Yeah. I'm right there just spinning around, not knowing. It's like a Christy Yamaguchi. Yeah. Yeah. You know, going from being like a huge social butterfly within kickball to being like, uh, and, and not being that way before that, having a, couple close friends and that it and that's it to uh, my world is constantly 
in my desires are constantly like expanding and contracting within how I can see people. Does that make sense? And I'm sure that maybe there's a lot of people that are out there like being like, man, I fucking love it. I don't have these social obligations. I don't need to like make up a, a reason why I don't want to go to a, a birthday party or a wedding or a night on the town or whatever with a bunch of people. I can just stay home to like, yeah, it'd be great to go to a bar right now. I'm not going to, but it like all these little things keep flip flopping. I had a screenwriter, screenwriter teacher say all stories are either a character going from independence to interdependence mm. or interdependence to independence. Like there's just these two journeys. You're either going away from connection or to connection. And I feel like that's true of us throughout our lives. We're either kind of where I, I remember people describing my, my sister describing the things that people do in groups as storming, norming and conforming. Like when we all started in kickball, we were all these crazy drunks who were, <laughs> well, I was 10 years older than everybody. Right. But, uh, and then everybody starts, and we're all going to – we love spending our time. We love being single. We love being out. We love doing crazy stuff. We love going out to bars. And then people start pairing up. Mm-hmm. And then they say, well, you know, maybe a date night is just a fine thing. Maybe we don't need to uh, go out and drink every night. And then conforming happens, and you just – you have kids, and you settle down, and you just – you turn into your parents. We always just turn into our, to our parents. But do you feel like the – your kickball may, took you out of your shell after a um, change in your relationship and mm-hmm. a, a move from Santa Monica, right, to or Santa Barbara to here. Yep, Seattle too. And yep. So, so it, it got you back, and then it, built it got me you back up. to a place where I never was in the you first never place. Were. I was, I was always within that. I was always within that small egg. I never, I had never broken out of that egg. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess so. Like, yeah, there's uh, just these constantly, um, you know, you're just sitting here and sometimes you're just staring off and you're just like, oh, yeah, I used to hang out with these dozens of people constantly, yeah. constantly, interact yeah. with them constantly. And I don't even talk to, you know, with Facebook being the trash heap of society that it is too, even though it's just a collection of friends. So I don't know what that says. <laughs> it's just one, it's just one of those things where I'm just constantly like, uh, I don't need to, I, I have no need to con comment on a particular yeah. thread because I just, I'll just stay away. It would be funny if you, if we all knew how the, how much the feeling was mutual. <laughs> they don't care about me either. They don't want me hanging around them either. Oh my all gosh, right, you guys, I see, I see you guys every week, every week. I'm There's working. a reason, you know? Yeah. yeah. And Freddie. All right, so my final one is, uh, I have to say this, Michael. Yes. Uh, uh-oh. Mea culpa on this. So you, pers- you personally. I'm, ex- I'm so excited right now. I used to give you crap about reading Harry Potter. Mm. And how it was a kid's book, and how could you get excited about reading a kid's book? And don't you have better things to read? Blah, 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 blah. Mea culpa. Mm. I was wrong about that. Mm. And I will I will take this to be more specifically and less less specific to Harry Potter because <sighs> Yeah. God knows that's a tra- that that's that's a trap I don't need to fall into is discussing Harry Potter specifically right now. Yeah. No, I, I, would... 
I 100% understand. And it is, it is that vexing nature of being like, God, Morrissey used to write some banging tunes. And then it's like, fuck, why is he such a douche? I actually had the Smiths as one of my potential choices. Mm. But then discussing about the Smiths and also discussing even in a sideways way, J.K. Rowling. Sure. Just felt like oh. too much of the same, too much of the same, uh, same thing. Yeah. But I will take this to be even just more broader. If even if something is made for kids, if you enjoy it as an adult and you're able to get value of it, out of it, whether that's a comic book mm. or a graphic novel or a book or a TV series or a movie, if you're able to get value out of it good for you. Go for it. Yeah. Like Spider-Man Far From Home is probably the best movie I've seen in the last three years. Hmm. It was not made for me, I don't think. It was made for my kids. It was made with an, it was made in a way and with such appreciation and care that's, that I could appreciate it. But it wasn't made for me. It was not, this was, this is children's entertainment. And I think that I've, I think that movie in particular made me realize I was being limiting in terms of what I consider appropriate for an adult to enjoy. Mm. And certainly I didn't read Harry Potter when it came out. I only got into it when uh, my wife and I started reading Harry Potter to the kids as a mm -hmm. nighttime story. We would trade off every other night and I would be in the bedroom listening to her whenever she was reading her half of it. So I basically read the whole thing. Oh, that's sweet. That way. And what, a, I mean, again, I, I, I don't want to get into this too much, how much you can separate the artist from the, the artwork and how much I could, if I could even reread it at this point. But what a, what a, what a brilliant book series. That's fantastic. Yeah. You know, I think, I think that there are so many just like, uh, really interesting deep life lessons within it. And, um, there's such a sense of morality and gentleness about the heroes, especially, and um, uh, specifically Dumbledore, who is just this so understanding. I remember. I think it's. I think the scene that is um, one of my my favorite scenes, the favorite parts of the book is, is in number five in Order of the Phoenix, when Harry Potter is just this fifteen year old. He's so built up of, he's so angry. He's so furious. No one won't tell him anything. No one, he's so, he has all this frustration. He just suffered this, is, this huge loss. Just after Sirius dies, right? Yeah. And like his other father figure dies and he's in Dumbledore's office and he's just like, he's breaking shit. He's just smashing things down. He's so furious and Dumbledore's so quiet, just letting him have like this, big fit of emotion within the book and it's just like god that and and he just he has this big mea culpa and he admits that he was wrong and he's this guy that's you know 150 years old admitting to a someone that is one tenth his age being like i i was just wrong to, to like treat you like a kid uh, this entire time i just was just protecting you because i love you and just like so heartbreaking so honest and then uh, he, she's so good at catching like these little moments of empathy and at the same time they were so poor about catching those moments of empathy within the movies 
and you, <laughs> you yeah. watch them, it's like all I wanted was to see that one scene. And I remember not seeing it and being like, okay, yeah, I, well, that's the difference between a book and a movie. But like, I don't know, it's just like the, the moments of, they capture these big swaths of these big moments of like frailty and, and missions of, um, ah, I did the wrong thing because I was trying to protect you. And God, that was wrong. Ah. Yeah. And, 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 and then, I, you know, and then the writer turns out to be like this huge garbage person later on in life. And it's like, do you hold that against them? I don't know. Did they, they did write this thing when they didn't have these thoughts, you would assume. And then they changed their mind. And you're just like, oh, fuck you. God, fuck you, Morrissey. Right. No, did I, I say uh, Morrissey? You did say Morrissey. Yeah. I, uh, like I said, I'm, I, I think I may have talked about this on the show at one point, but Nick Cage actually mm. had a, a very interesting blog post that came up. Someone asked him specifically about Morrissey and so basically saying I'm a huge Morrissey fan, but I can't stand kind of personally what he's become and how do I reconcile this? And Nick Cage's point was basically once an artist presents a piece of work out into the world, it ceases to become their property because you now then have taken it you listen to it if it's a song you read it if it's a book and you you establish a connection with it and you have your own relationship with that piece of art and it's no longer it no longer kind of matters what the person who created it does after the fact you kind of just have that relationship with this thing and if it's something that struck you in a certain way and it made you feel certain emotions the author or the person who created it doesn't have the right to take that away from you. I thought it was very, there's a very interesting perspective on it. But yeah, like I said, I didn't want to, this was the one I did not want to go down this path. Yeah, it's unavoidable. Yeah, it's unavoidable. But my bigger point is this. If you love something and it's geared toward kids and you're an adult, that's fantastic. I'm glad you're able to see the joy in it. You go. That's a lot, there's a lot of stuff that I appreciated as a young person because I thought it was adult. I thought it was what the grown-ups were listening to. So that's uh, sure. an interesting flip-flop of that. I will have to confess, uh, I did a 180. Um, I have always loved dogs, but did not see the reason to. Oh, here oh, it comes. Here. To if you guys were watching one. this, if you guys were watching this, Jeff just picked up his pooch. This is Oreo. He's a... Uh, a Chihuahua Fox Terrier mix, and he's got an infinite amount of love and issues uh, regarding <laughs> food and territory. But this kid won't stop, like, just adoring my wife and our cat. He just looks lovingly at the cat and, of course, me. And I think I always thought cats are like question marks. Dogs are like exclamation marks. They're always just trying to mirror back what you think, what you want, what you are. I don't need that. And uh, I guess I do more than I thought. I guess I need that uh, that love, that little guy. <laughs> I've been looking at a lot of comic books lately, so I'm going to... Um, I That was an insightful thing about comic book art. It's going to help me when I go back and uh, um, look at the run of... Doctor Strange. Like, why the fuck does his whole look change from one book to another? It peeves the shit out of me. 
this guy looks like David Niven, who Doctor Strange was like patterned after, and this other guy looks like, you know, like Benedict Cumberbatch. Or something. Yeah, that's stupid. Um, okay. And maybe um, what if what if he just showed up one day looking like uh, like Doug Henning? Oh. <laughs> He's just wearing like overalls and like (laughs) like a lot of rainbows. I mean, he's a he's a very colorful. Yeah. (laughs) Oh my God, Doug Henning, master of the mystic arts. Just hello. I don't know what his voice (laughs) sounds like, but it's gonna be awful. (laughs) And let's go with um, Abba because Abba's great. And how about how about? well, let's go. Yeah, I think it's kind of comforting right now. So let's go seeing people sucks just to help people get through this whole pandemic. And or you know what? it's great. Or it's great. I can't. Or it's it. great. I still don't know which side uh, Michael is arguing on this one. And I, I currently, I don't know either. Okay. And got one more. Uh, let's do. Um, let's do cheating is okay because. <laughs> There's a guy who uh, is currently the president of the United States um, who has been cheating on his taxes for like Holy shit. $750. <laughs> oh, my God. And uh, I think he lives under the credo that cheating is okay. And um, he hasn't oh, been proven sure. wrong personally. but uh, a, 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 a friend of ours, and I use the term kind of in air quotes here, is on Facebook right now arguing that basically Donald Trump is only doing what everyone should be doing, which is cheating on their taxes. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Dudes, uh, this has been the Mount Rushmore of things you did a 180 on. Uh, as always, I'm Richard. Uh, I used to be Michael, but now I'm Richard. <laughs> I'm Michael. <laughs>